podcast. This week, a Formula One legend and a Jaguar enthusiast. We're joined by Joe Ramirez. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott here with you on the lead up to Christmas. Hope you've got all of your Jaguar-themed wishes into Santa Claus ready for Christmas. And I hope you're going to have a wonderful festive time. Goodness knows we all deserve it. We've got a very special podcast lined up for you this week. No other features, no other interviews, just one really big, really amazing Really fascinating insight into the world of Formula One from a Jaguar Enthusiast Club member who himself is a Formula One legend. We are joined by Joe Ramirez. He has worked with the greats. He's going to be sharing his amazing stories and what led him to join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and get himself a classic Jaguar. We'll be hearing all those stories from him over the next hour here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. But before we get into that amazing interview, which you're going to love, I promise, uh, we just have to share and mark some really sad news here in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Many of you listening to this podcast have been with us since the very day one, since episode one that launched in April 2020. It was, of course, in the middle of the very first pandemic lockdown. And this podcast series came out of an idea by the chairman of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. He's appeared on this podcast many times, Ray Searles. And we're extremely sad to announce that very suddenly and quite unexpectedly, Ray Searles passed away on December the 9th at the age of 63. He was a passionate Jaguar enthusiast, a well-respected member of the global Jaguar family, an inspiring chairman for the club that brings you this podcast. He came up with the idea of this podcast and asked me to create it for him, but he was also a father, a husband and a friend to many. Ray was originally from Essex, but in more recent years had made Shropshire his home, and Ray leaves behind his wife Kay, two sons, Graham and Adam, and his dog, Bentley. Ray joined the board of directors at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club in 2013 and immediately rolled up his sleeves to organise events, leading the club's events committee ever since. Throughout that time, Ray has remained driven by the immense amount of joy that he took from creating amazing events and experiences for fellow Jaguar fans, including the memorable Summer Jaguar Festivals at Windsor Castle and Blenheim Palace. Ray became chairman in 2019 and has led the club through the recent challenging times with strength and vision, as this podcast proves. Ray owned an E-Type, which he affectionately referred to as Sophie, and undertook a number of European tours and excursions in the car, amongst which the Spirit of the Entente was one of his favourites and was a touring event that he had relaunched within the club for the enjoyment of others. Most recently, Ray had acquired another Jaguar, an XKRS, and had been getting to grips with its immense power and performance by taking part in a number of the club's track days. It's fair to say that Ray was well and truly bitten by the track day bug and was seen grinning from ear to ear through the visor of his helmet at Castle Coombe last October. Outside of Jaguars, Ray enjoyed an interest in all things James Bond and, with his wife Kay, shared a love of ballroom dancing 
and watching Strictly Come Dancing on the TV. Ray enjoyed regular trips to spend time at the family's villa in Spain and was also a supporter of the Haemophilia Society, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club's chosen charity for this year's raffle car, which Ray presented to its winner at the beginning of this month at the British Motor Museum in Gaydon. You can read a full tribute to Ray Searles both on the website of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club at jc.org.uk under the news pages there and of course in the monthly Jaguar Enthusiast magazine which will be coming shortly. Ray Searles, Jaguar Enthusiast Club chairman who passed away on the 9th of December aged 63. Next, the moment we've been waiting for, Joe Ramirez is on the way. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we have a rare opportunity, a rare opportunity to meet one of our inductees to the JEC Hall of Fame. Yes, he's actually joining us on the podcast as our feature interview. And imagine if we could have someone on this podcast who'd work behind the scenes at some of the biggest motorsport teams in the history of the sport. The likes of Ford, Maserati, Ferrari, they're all vehicles that this man has worked alongside, all teams that he has worked with. And we're about to find out about some of the amazing talent that he's worked with as well over that career and a career that has spanned many years including a stint at mclaren formula one as well and of course we can't talk about formula one without having richard west on to share memories so you and i dear listener are now going to sit back and we're going to listen in to two old pals talking about some fantastic times in motorsport richard west introduce your friend joe ramirez to the podcast Absolutely. Joe, welcome. And uh, I know down there in sunny Spain where you live now in your retirement, the weather is slightly better than it is here in the UK. But welcome to the Jaguar podcast. It's a huge pleasure to talk to you. And I've got the benefit of seeing you on my screen as well. So how are you, old friend? Are you well? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you very much for both of you. Nice uh, introduction to to the programme or the interview. And um Yes, I have to say it has been uh, lovely times that we have together, um, both of us at McLaren. Then you went with the competition at Williams, <laughs> but we remain friends, and uh, yeah. it's it's been it's been lovely to reminisce about those fantastic seasons that we had. Indeed, Joe, and I'd like I'd like to share some of that with some of our listeners because the podcast is now very popular. You know, we we sort of a five figure audience, and we've been lucky enough to talk to people you know well, like Tony Down, Martin Brundle, and various others, Alistair McQueen, who engineered many people and worked for Eddie Jordan and uh, TWR. But in relation to yourself today, you were you originally you came from the same town in Mexico as the Rodriguez brothers, didn't you? Yes. Yes, we used to. I used to race go karts with both of them, but uh, Ricardo was closer to age. We were the mm-hmm. same age, and uh, we become very friends. Pedro was a little bit uh, more reserved, and he didn't have a, a open character like uh, Ricardo and I had. And therefore, with Pedro, it was more difficult to be a, a close friend mm-hmm. uh, because he was very introvert. 
and Ricardo was the opposite. So Ricardo and I become good friends, and that's how I started my career. When he had a contract to race Formula One with Ferrari and sport cars as well, because they used to do both on those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said to him, "Okay, I find you. I go. I do my own way to Europe, and I." Uh, when I catch you up in Europe, you just introduce me to the right people at Ferrari and see if I can make a, some out of it. And uh, and this is how I, I started. You know, I uh, I got a ticket. Um, what is the word? I camouflage a ticket from a, the father of a friend of mine to go to New York. And then in New York, I took the Queen Elizabeth for $200. And that was the cheapest way to get to Europe in those days, you know, and as well to have uh, the opportunity to go in the Queen Elizabeth, the, the, the original Queen Elizabeth, you know, the mm. one that was burned in Japan. Mm. To mm. go to that in Europe, six days in they were absolutely fantastic. It's just exactly like the like the Titanic movie. Beautiful trip, beautiful boat, and a lot of fun. Anyway, and then there I, I <laughs> a lot I, of anyway. What's a lot of anyway? <laughs> it was just like Titanic. You mean it was a fantastic crossing where you had time to socialize and meet some girls and go dancing and do all those lovely things, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was fantastic. I I had a I shared a cabin with an Australian guy, which he was a little bit older than me, but we were in the 20, on the, no, well, I was 19. I think he was about 22, 3, 24. Anyway, we got on like a house on fire and we really have a lot of, a lot of fun. And when I got to New, um, no, where I was, Southampton, I went by auto stop all the way to, um, to Sicily, which was the first race, the Targa Florio, the first race that Ricardo was meant to do with uh, with Ferrari. Hmm. What I year was that, Joe? 61? 60, 61? 62. 62, beg your pardon. Two. And of course, Ferrari taking some uh, Ferrari GTOs for the drivers to just go around the track and learn it because it was kind of 75 kilometers long hmm. the, the circuit and hmm. absolutely just a normal road. So... And I had the opportunity to do a lap. I did a lap. No, I did three laps with Ricardo. And then he let me drive one lap. We sort of went by the, the pit. <laughs> so that we passed the Ferrari people. Then he stopped. He let me drive. And before I get back to the steep, I got out and he dropped. So you can imagine. I was, can you imagine that happened today? Absolutely impossible. No. <laughs> Anyway, it was just so much different there, and uh, I have a lot of fun. I used to get on really well with Ricardo, and I was very proud that I didn't do a bad time for that, uh, and I'm more proud that I didn't crash the bloody thing, because uh, <laughs> those cars now are uh, like 30, 35 million each. I was uh, just going to say, Joe, that was a throwaway line. Ferrari gave us some GTOs, you know, and as you say now, they're one of the world's most expensive cars. Yeah. I must just for the benefit of our listeners, actually, you say you didn't do a bad time. We always, when we shared the same office together at McLaren, you know, as we did with Malcolm Billiard, sadly no longer with us, and Liz Wood, and right next to Ron's office, very quickly I nicknamed you Racer because one of the first races I went to with you, you gave me a lift back in a hire car. And I've got to say, until James Hunt did similar a year later, it was the quickest I'd ever been in a hire car where you got your nickname Racer. So you did you did actually do a competitive time in that GTO. <laughs> Yes, actually, yes. I, I was, like I say, proud that I didn't shunt it. And, um, 
But I, I can't I can't really explain. It was such a lovely circuit, and Ricardo was telling you what to do, mm. uh, as well as I have been seeing him driven for three laps. I, mm. I kind of more or less learned something. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was just crazy to, to think about it now. If I would have done that now, the chances of crashing it and oh. wow, I would you know. So anyway. We, uh, I got away with it. <laughs> it was a hell of a start, though, to your career, Joe, because, you know, you said you started in karting like so many, and it went, you know, Rod McLeod, who worked with us at McLaren, you know, the young mechanic we had, he was very quick in a kart, but he worked his way up through various, you know, steps and stones. There you were, you know, with a friendship that saw you pretty much within the space of a year, two years, stepping into the fast lane. You know, you're telling us two years, two years after you were in Mexico, there you were driving in a GTO with one of the Rodriguez brothers, you know, and it, that's a very, very quick step. I heard once from somebody, and please correct me if this is not true, but when you first started working with Ferrari, did the old man have to sort of do a bit of a favour for you to get you in because of the unions and the Italians, or did they did they welcome you with open arms immediately into the Ferrari family? No, not at all. She said, uh, I was lucky because on those days, the passion opened the doors for you. Now mm. the passion don't do anything. There's so many people, as you know, <laughs> that defend their, their curriculums and they were a job in the Formula One team. Yeah. On those days, it wasn't like that. And he said, look, we like your enthusiast and uh, we cannot employ you because you are not Italian. You don't uh, have any qualifications and however. But if you come to the races, we pay you for the hotel, you pay you for the food, and uh, we started like that. We're great. And this is mm -hmm. how I did it the first few mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. um, I got a very close friend to um, uh, the other drivers, Lorenzo Bandini and Giancarlo Baghetti. And with Baghetti, mainly, I used to go to the races on his Ferrari. Mm -hmm. People on that, those days, they didn't take planes. Mm -hmm. In Europe, everybody drove to the races. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and when I get to the races, I uh, I work with the mechanics. They gave me all the shitty work to work to do, but uh, I was enjoying it. You know? I was doing the coffee, cleaning the floor, and cleaning the parts, but uh, learning the the language. So, uh, this is how I, um, how I started. Obviously, the longer I was there and the more friendly I got with the mechanics, they gave me more and more important jobs to do. So I was. Mm -hmm. I was happy. It was a fantastic few months. Unfortunately, that was a year that there was a lot of problems with Ferrari. There were a mm. lot of strikes and um, they missed some races because they couldn't complete the cars to go to the race. And of course, there was no development on the cars at all. No. Um, they won the championship in 61. In 62, they were lost completely. Mm. Sad. And then... I met through the Rodriguez, I met Juan Manuel Fangio, and he was unbelievable. He was such an unbelievable good person. And he introduced me in Maserati to uh, Engineer Alfieri, which he was the boss at Maserati. And that I got my first job when he said to me, look, we can't employ you because of not being Italian and whatever. But if I give you a letter that there is only you can do the job, especially that we're going to do, do you uh, give you at uh, Maserati? You go to uh, with this letter. You go to Rome to the home office and trying to get the work permit. If you get it, you got a job. So I went to Rome with it, and I spent a few weeks in Rome. Got the, the work permit, 
come back to Italy and that started my first kind of paid paying job in uh, in Italy. There won't be too many people who've actually got a, a, a written note from one well Fangio who actually says take that as a reference. You know, what I mean that. Yes, no, there were uh, there were great years. Like like I said, in Maserati they didn't do Formula One, but they mm. do a sport car race. You know, they did Le Mans, they did mm. uh, twelve hours of Sebring, the twelve hours of Rims, mm. and um, I, I was learning a lot. I, I happened to have my boss, the engineer. Gianpaolo Dallara, if you know Dallara, is a big name in the Absolutely. sport. He, yeah. made, he made every kind of formula in the sport and he's been successful in all. Mm. And um, so I got on really well with him. And he put me one month in the engine department, one month in the gearbox department, one month in the suspension and chassis department. So I was learning and learning all the time. And uh, after a year in Maserati, he then got the job to do the first Lamborghini. And he said, Joe, oh, Joaquino, how I was, you got to come with me. We go to Italy and we, I'm sorry, we go to Italy. We go to Lamborghini and make the, the first sport cars, you know, and I wasn't really more keen in making the sport cars. I wanted racing. And he promised me, look, that in the next year, we have to go racing because we got to uh, advertise our name in racing to to mm. start selling cars. You know? mm. So as well, I, I agree, I was the fifth employer at Lamborghini. And uh, it was a fantastic year because I, I the same, I was involved in every bit of the car. I was learning everything about it. And then I even did a lot of the road tests because we needed to have a lot of kilometers on the first car to see the things that they were falling off, etc. With Bob Wallace, which had become the really uh, the household name at Lamborghini. Mm. It was very mm. much involved in the first Lamborghini and then in the Mura. Before they did the Mura, I I saw I said uh, to Dallara and Lamborghini himself, look, I can't see that you're not never going to race. So, and I like racing, so I better go and look for another job. So this this is where I pack up my 500 Fiat and came back to England and started knocking doors. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got a job with uh, John Wire and uh, in Le Mans and sport cars. Also, Joe, I mean, you know, it's something we've both been through, you know, tragedy and racing. But in those early years, of course, you, you, you know, we, when Pedro uh, Ricardo raced at, I think it was Monza, wasn't it, with the factory Ferrari, and then of course did incredibly well. But that was a weekend that also in that first lap, it claimed the life of Von Trips. And uh, then, of course, you know, you, 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 he moved across and he drove for the very famous Rob Walker from the Walker Scotch Whiskey Dynasty, but sadly lost his life driving, didn't he? Yes, that was in, in Mexico. After the last two races of that year, they couldn't, um, Ferrari, because of the strikes that were, they, they didn't have the cars ready to go to Mexico. So they left the drivers free. And Ricardo got the drive with Rob Walker because, of course, they lost the Sterling Moss after his yeah. uh, famous accident in Goodwood. Goodwood. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he went with Walker to. I think that I couldn't get back to Mexico, of course, I didn't have the money to fly across the Atlantic. So I, I stay in Italy and uh, apparently he was, uh, there was kind of star racing who was doing the quickest lap. It was him or Surtis or whatever. Mm. 
and in in the end, uh, Ricardo lost lost his his car uh, at the entrance of the parabolica corner, very famous. Mm. La, La Peraltada was called, and mm. um, the car touched the guardrail on top, and then he went touched the guardrail on the bottom, and he got thrown out of the cart. Mm. Cut mm. himself in half. So horrible. A friend of mine was there at the corner and he called me after and he told me all that, you know, he mm. had to put him on the ambulance and the, he was just shouting, please don't let me die. I don't want to die. Don't let me die. And he was just losing so much blood. And by the mm. time he got up to the hospital, he was gone. So that was a, very sad. I was, that was the biggest shock I ever had on my. Mm. racing career because you know we were so close and he helped me so much in my life and uh, mm. so he lost it so quick and so abrupt and you know I was thinking oh it's not good to get involved in this sport you know you, you get very involved with people and mm. then you see one minute and the next one they're gone but yeah yeah, yeah they said, oh, this is what I like I like to and it's not always going to be like that and uh so I did carry on. But it's funny, that's one of the things that uh, people that have read my book, they said to me, I said, well, I didn't believe how many people used to get killed on those days. Oh, terrible, terrible, Joe, when, I mean, those early days. When I uh, when I think about it and I go through the book and yes, it was so many people, either in sport cars, in Formula One, wow, it was unbelievable. So. To think how how safe the sport had become now, wow! Thanks to the effort of Jackie Stewart, mainly, and some other drivers that uh, they have uh, they have made the, the sport so safety. Saying that, they have lost a little bit of the of the I don't know the emotion that we had before um, by making the tracks far too safe. And the cars, the cars are safe, um, and what has kind of uh, made the difference more the cars and the tracks, but the tracks as well because you don't find so many trees like we used to find in the old races where there was just a tree, there was no guardrail, no no barrier mm. at all, and um, yes, lots of things have changed in our sport. Indeed, but the you look back at those. Good of it, especially yeah, I agree. Safety. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the safety side. When you look at what Bernie did, you know, particularly with Professor Sid Watkins, who we've also put in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I mean, the efforts that you and I saw after we sadly lost Roland and Ayrton that awful weekend at Imola, the sport has come on leaps and bounds. And I think if you look at Grosjean's accident last year, you know, between the barriers, I mean, that would have been unsurvivable in years gone by. Yeah. Nothing, you know, it would have been just a oh, dreadful wow. mess. And. Uh, yeah, we owe, we owe a lot to those people who've done that. Let, let's come back on, on a brighter note. You know, you came to Europe, you worked for Ford, but of course you you also joined um, Dan Gurney with his All-American Racers, and in fact, or with the Eagle programme, I think it was in those days. And Dan, sadly gone now, but when we did that lovely McLaren reunion, you came to Matthew Jeffries and I, I think it's about like seven, nine, nine years ago now, when we did the McLaren 50th or eight years ago, we um, we actually had Dan live on stage, and I remember I was talking to Dan prior to you know that big event when I was interviewing him live on stage, and I happened to be looking at you when I said, "Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome you know motor racing legend Mr. Dan Gurney?" And your face lit up, absolutely lit up. And Dan made a reference to you, you know, when he was talking about his years in racing. He was a fantastic guy, wasn't he? Oh, um, he was a fantastic 
man, driver, friend, everything. Engineer, mm. he was mm. a, a man that had everything. He had this aura. He was another guy that he, they were so special. And yes, I worked for him for five years in uh, Formula One sports car we we an indianapolis and mm. kind of racing in the state mm. because i was two years with him in uh, more or maybe two or three years in no you're three years i think out there yeah, yeah you did you did three years with eagle and then you went out and from, from what i remember you got involved in can-am indycar and trans-am racing yeah. with him didn't you yeah. yes no he was uh he was extraordinary man really really good mm. it, uh, no he was after that interview we did with him at the McLaren event. About a week after we'd done it, and we were all sort of calming down and getting over the immense effort of having those 350 current and former McLaren people with us. I just got a plain envelope from the States and I opened up, and there was a lovely black and white picture in there of him with uh, Bruce McLaren, Jimmy Clark, Graham Hill, all of them, when they all dressed up in black tie and took over a stage, do you remember, and pretended to be the band in a cabaret, an award ceremony. And uh, uh, he just wrote on it, uh, many thanks, Richard. Great interview, exclamation mark. Give my regards to Joe Best, Dan. And I, I've, I've got that framed in you know one of my uh, workshops. And I just think it's a lovely picture because all of those great people that you see in those pictures, sadly, are no longer with us. But of course, you had the opportunity to work with them. When you came back from Dan, you were there at five years, we were just saying, you came back as chief mechanic for John Wire, didn't you? In those iconic uh, golf Porsches, you know, and you, some of the drivers that you worked with there, Dickie Atwood, Herbert Muller, Joe Siffert, Pedro Rodriguez, Jackie Oliver. I mean, my God, that was a lineup and a half, wasn't it? Yes, indeed. That was brilliant, brilliant years. Um, well, in the 70s, 71, mm. won everything with the Porsche 917. Superb. I remember... Uh, uh, one of the races that I most remember was uh, Daytona. I can't remember the year from the 70s. Um, the car stuck in fifth gear with Jackie Oliver driving. So he came in. We were leading the race and we came in like uh, three hours before the end of the race after 24 hours. The car was stuck in fifth gear. And uh, with the rules, you can change everything in the gearbox, but not the gearbox itself. So you have to open the gearbox and change all the gear, whatever you want. Mm. But you cannot change, put another gearbox. The rules won't allow that. So um, we, it took us about an hour to get all the gears out with heat and cold, whatever, you know, big hammers. Anyway, <laughs> we, uh, we put it all together, put all it, close the thing. And uh, Pedro was just... just um, Time to go out with the car and it started raining and Pedro in the rain was absolutely magic. You know? mm -hmm. So he started carving, passing the second and third place and got to the lead again and, and won the race. You know, I was fantastic. And I remember the headlines on the American papers after the golf mechanics rescued the wind for, for, for wire. And How that fantastic. was great because you, you feel that you were part of the race, not just the drivers. We, yeah. Super. I still got one of those pictures where we got all uh, waiting the end of the race and we never had time to go and change and put in clean overalls. We were all absolutely filthy, you know. Um, <laughs> happy that, you know, we won the race. It was uh, one of the best races I've ever had. 
It's funny you say that because I've got a picture of you in one of my collections of you uh, in the downhill pits at Spa with the 917 just going down the hill there. And there's you sort of walking up the hill in your golf overalls. And the only thing that really lets you know that there's a blue and orange pair of overalls on is the golf badge because everything yeah. else is just covered in fuel and oil. You know, poor old Ron Dennis would have a heart attack soon. You can't express like that. Can you imagine? He? <laughs> <laughs> he would go yeah. crazy. Listen, Joe, let's move you on because in 72, you were back in Formula One and you mentioned the great Jackie Stewart earlier. And of course, there you were working with Jackie at Tyrrell, with Ken Tyrrell down at the Woodyard in Ockham. And also the young man who really spurred my interest in Formula One when I read, you know, um, his book. And that, of course, was Francois Sever, who lost his life driving for Tyrrell. But what a combination that must have been, you know, the old master with all of his skill and trickery alongside a man who was not only in France or a talented racing driver, but a film star to look at as well. Oh, that was a brilliant days. Brilliant days because working for Ken Tyrrell was one of the greatest things uh, that I was lucky to get there and work with him for a couple of years. It was brilliant. Ken was really a family affair. Um, we used to always stay because the team was very small then, you mm. know. The whole team was 25 people, including the, um, the man that do the, the accountants and everybody. Wow. Five or six of us went to the races and the rest were at home doing everything, you know. And we did it in a, in a shed, practically a garden shed where we worked. It was incredible. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> We used to make the chassis, the suspension. Of course, we buy the engine, we buy the gearbox, uh, but the body and everything else we made at home uh, in the house. So it was, uh, and when we went to the races, uh, Ken always insists we all have to stay in the same hotel and we had dinner together, the drivers, the engineers, the, the engineers, it was only one, uh, and the mechanics. And, um, fantastic, fantastic years. And the camaraderie that exists between Francois and Jackie was great because they got mm. on really well. Francois knew that one day he would take over uh, as a former, as a best, the number one driver in in, in Tyrrell. And he was remember one race where they were first and second all the time in um, what to be 70, 72. So. Um, yeah, it was a very successful season. Mm. It was it was winning first and second in um, in Holland. Mm. And then uh, Jackie missed the gear in the Tarzan corner, and and Francois was behind, and he was nearly hitting. He moved on the side to let go, and uh, and then when they finished, um, they both stopped in Parfermé. I was taking the the seat belts of Francois, which was my driver. And Jackie come uh, in the cockpit and he said, you are stupid. Why didn't you pass me? It was your opportunity. I made a mistake. You should have passed me. And Francois said, no, no, no. I knew you made a mistake. And I didn't want to pass you when you made a mistake. I didn't want, I want to beat you when I can beat you, not because you made a mistake. Wow. I was amazed. I couldn't yeah. believe it. But that's yeah. the relation that they have, the two of them. It was mm. brilliant. Mm. And again, it ended in tragedy, didn't it, with losing Francois? Yeah. I mean, he, he was such a charismatic character. Denise, my wife and I were, well, you know Denise, um, we were watching a, a documentary recently and Sever was sitting on the pit wall and Denise just looked at me because she didn't follow Formula One in those days, although she worked for Rothmans Porsche and all the rest. And she just said to me, 
who is that stunning looking bloke? And I said, that was Francois Sever. He, he just looked and acted like a film star, didn't he? Yeah, 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 remarkable see, yeah. Like a film star, but he was a very serious racing driver. Absolutely. He was a good pianist as well, you know, mm. so it, mm. uh, another guy that he had it all and unfortunately he didn't. Mm. And lost it, yeah. Life. Yeah. Moving on, really, from your Tyrrell years, and I don't want to dwell, you know, on that loss. You went, of course, then you went across to Slough and you joined Emerson and with, uh, Wilson Fittipaldi, who had the Kofasuka team. I remember that was the first job I ever went for in motor racing and I didn't get it. I went there to try and be the storeman. And I remember going in and seeing these fantastic yellow Kofasuka cars and dreaming about, you know, working for the team. But it wasn't to be. But you were there with them, weren't you? Yes, I started there. That was kind of my, where I, I my uh, promotion from race mechanic to team manager. Mm. Uh, they they offered me the job because I was uh, from South America. I speak Spanish. I speak Italian. I kind of speak Portuguese. So it was easy for for me to learn Portuguese working with them. Mm. And, they had a dream to build in a Formula One car in Brazil with Brazilian mechanics, Brazilian people and um, designer and everything. So they thought I was the, the right person for it, the job. And in a way, I guess they, I was the right person, but I have to say it was very difficult, very difficult, not only for doing things in Brazil, because uh, imagine you're doing a Formula One car in, in, in Brazil. You, you have to import the engine, the gearbox, the fuel mm. tank, brakes, you name it. Everything has to come from Europe. Very mm. few things you can make over there. And, and the uh, customs facilities did not make any uh, easier for us to do it. You know, mm. we're doing mm. something that it was kind of a, reflect very much on Brazil their Brazil industry, etc. And, you know, we used to have engines and fuel tanks stayed in, uh, in the custom for weeks. And that really was very hard. Mm. Also, Emerson and Wilson, they, they, they were good guys, but they, they had big fights between them. And it was always um, kind of very difficult. Um, but because they were the bosses kind of thing. Mm. I was running the team, but uh, they were on top of me. And so it, it wasn't easy to, to tell you the truth, although uh, the first time we tried to do a car with a complete different concept and we failed, it was a failure completely. Then the second year we had a car more conventional. And, and in fact, Emerson did the fastest lap ever at the time in testing for the Brazilian Grand Prix. Unfortunately for the race, he damaged himself a muscle or something. He couldn't drive to, he was really in pain. And uh, he qualified fifth or something like that, which is still quite good. And from then on, then Emerson, the big engineer that he thought he was at the time, <laughs> uh, he said, now we're going to South Africa, completely different track. you got to change this, you got to change that. And, you know, he makes us made a completely different car and of course we go to south africa we were struggling for, for qualifying and in the end after the friday uh wilson and myself and ricardo richard de villa which unfortunately is not with us anymore we convinced them okay you have your chance and it didn't work now let us do what what we want to do so we put it back how the car was and and uh, he finished six or seven in qualifying for the race so um, 
the car itself was good, but we have always fighting and then never had enough money, whether if uh, the Fittipaldis have a very lavish style of life. And I don't never knew exactly if all the money from Kapusuka was getting to the team or not. <laughs> I've seen you in the pit lane with Emerson, and whenever the two of you see each other, you hug each other like brothers. I mean, you obviously had a great relationship with him. Oh, yes. And now we've seen, we've been, uh, um, for the last three years, I think both of us were the ambassadors for the Grand Prix and uh, the Mexican Grand Prix. And we went up to, you know, entertaining the public and signing autographs together. And, and we had a, a great time, you know. Uh, but at the time, it was hard. But I, I think, you know, like everybody, all of us in our life, at a later age, we, we know and which were the faults that we made on our youth or the problems that... And I think he, as much as me, we know that we both have made errors and that, that we could have made it before, but we all do that. If we if we knew what we... Uh, no, now. <laughs> what we knew now, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still writing my list of errors. <laughs> in our second life, we'll be, we'll be a lot better than we are in our first yeah, life. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. But the problem is we'd probably do exactly the same as we did before. You you then went, when you left, you went on, when Kopasuka folded up, I know you had stints with Shadow, ATS and Theodore. There was virtually nobody you haven't been with. But in December 83, you joined McLaren at Woking and you'd only been there six months when I was given the opportunity to join the team. It was a completely different kettle of fish working for Ron, wasn't it? Who, you know, I admire massively as you do. Not the easiest of men to deal with, but class acting. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, those, those, days, those years between Kopersuka and, and uh, McLaren were really character building. Nado <laughs> uh, and Teodoro and ATS. You know, you need the years like that to, like I said, to character building. Mm. Uh, but getting to McLaren was completely another cattle fish altogether. I remember Ron saying, okay, what you need for the team, you get it. Don't you mm. ever worry about the money. I worry mm. about that. Mm. Wow, completely. You know, we were, you probably remember, we were the first team to have the four post bed mm. to do the chassis. Yeah, four post chess rig. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah shaker no, rig, as they're called. And I said, uh, Ron, I think all the engineers are pushing me that we, sh we must have one of them. But how much are they? About a million dollars. And we need it. You get it. Don't you worry about the money. Wow. Mm. What a completely, you know, because mm. on all the small teams we were, I used to worry about the money, about the sponsor, about everything. So mm. when you get there, don't worry about money. I worry about that. You just get the best for the team. And that's what we did at McLaren. It was a fantastic, fantastic team. Ron, like you say, difficult person. But on those days, he was the best. He was the best in yeah. the business. Like uh, John Barnard was, he was the best in the business. And just put the two guys, and there was a lot of friction between them. Well, I was going to come on to that because when I when I joined you, I joined you in the July of '84, and you'd, you'd obviously settled in. And that little office that we shared up the stairs, I'm talking about. You know, you look at the McLaren Technical Centre now. There's no resemblance. You said about Tyrrell's wooden shed at Ockham. We weren't quite like that, but Boundary Road. I think there was 
from looking at the picture, there was about 68, 69 of us working there at the time. But I always remember the first day I got there, there was a guy, and you'll, you'll know who I'm going to talk about, Arthur. There was a guy wandering around with a tin of paint, you know, and paintbrush with a white coat on, and he was wandering up and down the corridor. And I moved up and I was introduced to you and Liz Wood, and Ron came out and said, right, you got what you need. And I sat down and I remember saying to you, I didn't know we had the decorators in and you looked at me and you said, that's not a decorator, that's Arthur, he's employed here, his job is to go round whenever he spots a mark on the wall, he has to paint it out so the factory is always immaculate. And do you remember when, Miss, when the Prime Minister, Lady Thatcher, came to visit us, first day of the Gulf War, and she walked round the factory, I remember her turning to Ron and saying, for an old factory, it's very clean, isn't it? Do you remember? And that was the, that was the hallmark of Ron, wasn't it? He kept everything absolutely immaculate. But we worked upstairs Days in that little tiny office, you, me, Malcolm Billiard, latterly Peter Burns, and Liz Wood, who used to do all of our travel. And our office was literally, what, three feet away from the glass partition where Ron's office was? I and know. I've, I've talked about, <laughs> but occasionally, and I've said this on the podcast before, you'd hear JB, John Barnard, come thundering up the steps. My God, they used to have some scraps, didn't they, him and, him and Ron? Uh, <laughs> the board used to, you know, vibrate with <laughs> argument. But look what it achieved. I mean, in 1984, with Nicky Lauder, Alan Pross, you know, Mansur OJ, sadly, another man, great man now gone from the tag empire with that wonderful TTE P01 Porsche engine, uh, you know, built by Porsche, but with so much input from McLaren. There we were winning 12 out of 16 races, and it was an incredible achievement on what was actually, even in those days, actually still a relatively small budget. It was only in later years we upped the money, wasn't it? Yes, yes. I, I remember, um, you know, I had to make a... The one thing was very good at McLaren that Ron always used to tell me. When we win a race and if we are aware, you know, Ron and the engineers, everybody left. And I had to stay with the mechanics until the cars were completely rebuilt and ready for the next race. And, uh, and Ron always used to say, just make sure the boys have a good time. And um, by God, did we have a good time? We have a party. My credit card was never queried. Whatever we have big parties, we spend, and my credit card was never um, queried. Nobody ever done. He was always hugely generous like that. If you look back, like when we went to Australia, and I used to organise those big, you know, clay pigeon shooting contests that we did, and the big party we always had at the Adelaide Hilton, and all those things. Ron would be incredibly generous. And in fact, his parting gesture, as you know, when he left, you know, Formula One for good, was when he hired the Albert Hall and invited us, everybody who'd ever worked for him, to go there and see that remarkable Circus Soleil event that he did in, in London. I think at this point, you know, there's a lot we can talk about with you at McLaren, but I think it's for our listeners, it's worth actually just going back. And you've probably got these written down somewhere, but I look back over your stats. You participated in 479 Grand Prix. You were present at 116 victories in Grand Prix racing. You were part of teams that won 10 World Drivers' Championships, 73, 84, 85, 86, 88, 89, 90, 91, 98, and 99. You worked with five world champions, Jackie Stewart, Nicky Lauder, Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, Mika Hakkinen. And with McLaren, you had seven F1 world championships in 84, 5, 88, 89, 90, 91 and 98. You worked with eight F1 teams, Ferrari, Eagle, Tyrrell, Fittipaldi, Kopasuka, Shadow, ATS, Theodore and of course McLaren. Do you think you missed out on anything? <laughs> wow, wow, wow. What an incredible... 
You, I've <laughs> actually, I never heard it like that. I know that I was yeah. born in 118 Grand Prix and uh, so many championships, but I never, and as well, have uh, working for so many different Grand Prix teams. That uh, no. really was fantastic. I was very proud when I retired. I was very proud of that. Um, um, curriculum or whatever you want to call it, but now, of course, the lights of Toto Wolf and Ross Brown well overpass me on that. But mm-hmm. uh, at the time, it was quite uh, quite remarkable. I, I have to say that's very very pleased. And uh, I know I had this uh, when I very very often when I see the the who has been the best driver of the world. And the eras are different, so it's very difficult to say who is the greatest driver of the world. Mm. But that's a question that has always been asked with a lot of people on mm. the press and people that have a lot of knowledge of the sport and so on. And uh, invariable, when I see this list of the 10 best drivers in the world, I see this list and invariable, I have worked with six of them Mm. Which I thought, wow, that is quite uh, quite something, quite something. and I'm uh, quite quite proud of it. Mm. But mm. I guess I've been lucky. This is how uh, I started a long time ago, and um, and that is how things happen, you know. And yeah, I think you're being very modest, Joe. I mean, I say this as a true friend and an admirer of yours from the very first day I met you in Formula One. You know, you've always been an incredibly warm character I've, I've never seen a bad side of you and i genuinely mean that you know a lot of people including yours truly here have got a bit of a side on occasions you've never shown that and in fact the fact that in i remember in 93 seeing you walk down the pit lane towards the podium when Ayrton on the podium and fanjo was on his way down to shake hands and present Ayrton with the trophy and he stopped and gave you a hug you know and things like that have always stuck in my memory about you when you got to i call it the end of your full-time formula one career you retired in 2001 and I do remember very, very well David Coulthard and Micah Hagenden giving you a Harley Davidson Road King motorcycle as a thank you present. Have you still got it? Yeah, yeah. I have to say I haven't used it for the last couple of years or so because um, I, we did a lot. We, we went to Portugal. We did uh, uh, to Marruecos in, in Morocco, uh, most of Andalusia. We had a great time with the bike. Have two little accidents that was no no problem to either Ursula or me. But then I we decided that uh, now I have another um, classic cars and it's just not time to run the classic cars and the bike. And, and we decided that it was a little dangerous. We have an accident on the char- on the Harley at our age. We never recover. And Ursula would always put the example of Dan Gurney, one of my greatest mm. friends, that uh, he had an accident. Uh, I think he was about 70. Two or seventy-four. That's right. On one of the his motorcycle, the Alligator Eagle that he mm. designed and built, mm. and had an accident and he never recovered from it. No. The last ten years of his life, he's always suffered for it. And and also, I said, well, do you want to have an accident? And you know, let's just stick to the cars, and we have more <laughs> survival <More> protection. <laughs> 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 
but it is something that is very close to me, that bike, and the moment they gave it to me, that I couldn't part with it, you know. So yeah. I don't know when I go, what my brothers or Ursula would do with the bike, but uh, at the time, I, I something that I still go and see it in the garage and remember the day they gave it to me. Oh, absolutely. Lovely photo. There's a brilliant photograph of you receiving it, and I know how thrilled you were. Just actually, I just I've just turned over a piece of paper on my desk, and I I forgot to admit that you also won world one world sports car championship with Porsche in 1971. You won world one world sports car drivers championship with Pedro Rodriguez. And you work for four teams in prototype sports cars with little-known names such as Ferrari, Maserati, Ford and Porsche. So really, that is an incredible list. Before I hand you over to Wayne and sort of hand off, you mentioned earlier, you know, your book, which I've got a copy of and I've read several times, Joe Ramirez, Memoirs of a Racing Man. It's a fascinating read. And I mean, today you've shared so much with, with us and, you know, our listeners within the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. It's a tough one for you and it's a tough one for me because you had a, a really amazing relationship with Ayrton. If if anybody cares to go on the internet and look at footage of Ayrton's successful McLaren career, you're always there. You're, you're on the grid with him. You're picking up the helmet. He's got his arms around you. And of course, then when he came across to us, he signed his contract in September 93 to drive for Williams and drove for this in those few races in 94. I remember, you know, shortly after the accident, you walking in the back of the garage and looking at me and just saying to me, please tell me it's not true. And I wasn't able to, to look you in the eye because I'd already heard from the hospital that, you know, we, we, we were losing him. He was a very, very special guy, wasn't he? <clears throat> yes, no, he had uh, a kind of electricity, um, an aura about him. I always said... It was a man that he comes into a room and that room changes completely. Absolutely. He, I don't know, he had a charisma, he had everything, you know, and very uh, competitive. Um, he would have uh, triumphed on his life, whatever he decided to be, an architect, a doctor, an engineer. He was just that sort of person. He applied himself for, for, to his job and his pro profession in the way that I never see anybody. You know, all the drivers that came after him, like Schumacher, Fernando Alonso, they start working the same way that he used to. Like he used to work with the engineers till 10, 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And um, on those days, the rest of the drivers like Prost, you know, he finished practice, speaks 20 minutes with the engineers and he go and play golf. No, Ayrton, no, Ayrton used to stay there until 10, 11 o'clock. No, Ayrton was uh, uh, really uh, so committed for his job and his profession. Mm. And that was great. This is why, as you know, all of us, we, have, we were ready to give our 110% mm. because we know that when he got on the car, he gave 150%. Mm. Um, so... And, we always, I always say that we learn so much mm. by working with Ayrton, not only mm. just the way he conducts his life. You know, mm. if he opened his briefcase, he was so organized, everything on his briefcase had um, Italian lira, French francs, uh, English pounds, and whatever, and different, uh, all so organized. You know, before he went to a race, he was always come and sit in the 
in my office. So what are we doing? Where do we get the courtesy cards? At what time we have to sign in? This. And by the time he, if we got there, he had it all on his mind. And, you know, it, it was perfection at his best. Yeah, it was. And that logo that he came up with, you know, which was his brand driven to perfection, summed him up. I mean, we've got the benefit of seeing each other on this screen for this audio recording. And you can see behind me, there's a Ayrton helmet, which I just, you know, I absolutely worship. And it's never been off my desk in all the years since he's been gone, because if ever I lack commitment or, you know, inspiration, I just stop and have a look at that and think about the guy who used to wear it and think to myself, well, you know, you've worked with him, you've worked with the best guys like your good self and Ron and Frank and Tom Walkinshaw, and you, you know, pull your act together and make it happen. And that was what always impressed me so much about the man. He, he just had an unrelenting drive to driven to perfection. That, that's really him. That's my best memory of him, to be honest. Joe, um, later life, um, dare I say it, you're now over 80 years old. You had your 80th birthday in August, I think I'm right in saying. Yes. When you told me the other day and I saw you earlier, I feel like I feel like 80 some days and you still look like 60. You're doing really well. I mean, you've written columns in the Mexican newspaper. As you say, you go down, you're an ambassador at the Mexican Grand Prix. You've been a real supporter of Mexican talent. You've been behind um, um, Adrian Fernandez. You've looked after Salvador Duran. You've been there with Chaco Perez and Esteban Gutierrez. You know, you've been an inspiration to them. Not only that, you're a member of the Scuderia Rodriguez, which is Mexico's racing legion of honour. I mean, it's a really important thing to have. And you've been named in the Mexican Motorsport Hall of Fame. So there you are, really, the all-man. And not only that, you also participated in the uh, Carrera Panamerica, where you had a fourth place, I think, in the in the A category there of historic racing. And this brings us right round to the point where Wayne Scott, who's been sitting there so patiently recording this lengthy conversation, I'm going to hand you over to Wayne in a minute, because as I said at the very beginning, when we were having a chat before we started to record things, there you are now, the proud owner of a Mark II Jaguar, and you're an honorary member of Spain's uh, branch of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. So my dear friend, Joe, if I was there, I'd give you a hug. It's so lovely to see you on screen. It's fantastic to relive some of those incredible memories of your career. But I'm going to hand you over to Wayne because I'm sure he'd like to close with a few questions. Big hugs, my friend. Hope to see you soon. Lots of love. Thank, thank you very much, Richard. I always, uh, one of the things I always envy about you is the, the gift of the gaff that you have. <laughs> uh, fantastic. I love to talk to you and I love to hear you because... And you haven't lost it, I tell you. We're getting lost. We're getting old. I lost all my little um, uh, gift of the half that I ever had, if I did. Uh, but you still have it. And uh, it's brilliant. It's really. And thank you very much for those lovely words that you have said and, and remind me of all my, my career and my curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I hear it from you, sound a lot better than when I see it here. <laughs> Well, we'd, we'd give you a job, don't worry. <laughs> Wayne, over to you. Well, let me sum up the last 40 minutes or so here on the JC podcast for me. The Targa Florio, what an amazing event that was in the mountains above Palermo on Sicily. It was stopped in 1977 because it was just so dangerous. You, Joe, drove a GTO Ferrari around that track. Juan Manuel Fangio, the great legend that is, got you your first job. You were the fifth ever employee at Lamborghini and you worked with one of my favourite cars ever built the Porsche 917s in the Golf livery. 
you had some tough years, but then you arrived at McLaren and you flourished and you took that team to those amazing victories that makes them so famous now. I honestly can't say that I've sat and listened to an interview that has given me goosebumps as many times as that one just did. It really has been an amazing journey. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Uh, I want to just ask you about Jaguars now, because as Richard said, you are a uh, honorary member of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club in your part of Spain there. Why Jaguar? What was the thing that attracted you to the mark? I think if, we, if you're talking about classic cars, when it comes to me, it's always a Jaguar, that front end of the Jaguar with the double uh, lights and, and and the grill i guess it's it's so it's so typical of uh, of a classic car and and i had my first jaguar um uh well thanks to ron dennis and thanks to my career i was able to to enjoy a good healthy retirement as far as uh, the financial is concerned. And I, I also used to put a lot of, I mean, if Ron Dennis come here to my house and see what I have here in my cars, and then he said, oh my God, I pay you too much. But <laughs> I was in motor racing more than 40 years. And uh, and I, I, was, uh, I was lucky to put a lot of money, I put it in shares, all my extra money, and I put it in shares that they were kind of um, easy ones, not, uh, I, I wasn't too, but I was very lucky. I put a lot on uh, um, Richard Branson Virgin and I made some money. Anyway, I was looking for a classic car and I went to JD Classic, which you probably know. They, they changed the name now because of problems they have with the owner, uh, Derek Hood. But, uh, Anyway, I was looking for a car. I was looking for an Alfa Romeo or a Jaguar or a Porsche, um, not, nothing specifically. And I saw a car, I saw a 150S, um, two-seaters, coupe. It was so beautiful, the car, that I fell in love with it. And the guy there, and he said, uh, oh, he said, don't look at it, it's sold already. Oh, what a shame. And the next day, the guy called me and he said, look, are you still interested in this Jaguar? Because the guy that was going to buy it, his wife told him not to buy it. And he, he, he didn't bought it anyway. And so and I thought, well, I, have to I would have changed the wife, not the car. But anyway, <laughs> so the car was uh, a mile of all again. And uh, it was more expensive than I thought. But anyway, I make a deal with Eric and, uh, and I bought it. And I brought it here into, I took it here to Spain. And it was the most, it was like any JD classic car was really concourse. The car was, everybody admired it here in Spain. And it really was probably the best Jaguar I've ever seen. I changed the seats. I made a little thing. I put the bucket seat because you have the other seat. Every time you go in the corner, you kind of slide to the passenger's side and it's uh, not so comfortable to drive fast. So I put, bucket seats and I did little changes and the car was brilliant but come the Brexit I couldn't have the car like that here and um, because you have to put uh, Spanish plates which would cost you a lot of money and uh, and I then I was think automatically you would devalue the cost of the car because nobody in Spain will pay what that car was valued 
Um, you know, you, you could sell the car like that in England, in Germany, um, in some other countries, but Spain, no, they haven't got the, this kind of uh, culture of the classic cars. Uh, anyway, sadly, I took it back to England. I sold it there. I put it on a, on a auction and I lost some money. And I knew I was going to lose some money because one of the things that people should know, if you want to buy a classic car, never buy a classic car on purely love of the car. Because if you want to make love, uh, if you want to make money, be more careful of what the market is doing and whatever. So anyway, I lost some money on that car. But when I come back, the the actual chairman and president of our classic car club, Ian Giles, had a beautiful Jaguar, uh, on Mark II, like the car that Inspector Morse used to drive. And I love it. That has been one of the classic cars that I liked so much in my life. And uh, I said, come on, Ian, I buy you cars. No, no, I don't want to sell it. I'm not interested. Come on. So I keep on. And in the end, he agreed to sell the car to me. And that's the one I, ca- I have now. And and uh, very pleased with it. It's, it's also a um, very fantastic estate. I got to do a little jobs on that, which I haven't done it. But uh, I will do it with time. And yes, I enjoy it. We're doing the runs. I have that. I have another. I have a Ferrari, an old Ferrari, an old Fiat Cinquecento, and a Porsche. But being in a classic car club that is uh, admits every car, as well as being in the um, enthusiast Jaguar club, which I've been an honorary member on that for a few years. So it's always nice to pass time. Um, not every weekend, but at least one weekend a, a month for sure. One of the classic gets around. It's a tremendous accolade, I think, for Jaguar that there you have had a career at the leading edge of of vehicles, of motorsport, and a, an old classic Jag from the 60s still excites you and still does it. Um, you know, this is the man that we just learned about driving the Targa Florio in a Ferrari GTO. I think that's a great accolade for Jaguar, actually, and it's uh, it's great to hear you talk about it. When you talk about it, I get the feeling, Joe, that you have a bit of a love for all things English. Am I right? Oh, very much. Very, very much. I think... Uh, uh, I always consider England like my second country. Uh, I love it. I, I love everything about England. The people, the sense of humor, the British language, uh, even the food and the weather that people say that oh, the food is no good and the weather is horrible. But no, I, everything about England, I like it. I don't know. It's a, It was always nice to get up on Sunday morning and get to bike and go to the closest close shop and buy the paper. And the Sunday papers, they had millions things to read and you spend the whole morning in the terrace reading the paper on the Sunday. I mean, I don't know. There was easy things. That, uh, life was good. Life was good on, on England. I just want to say how much I love England and how sad I feel that he has changed some more. 
I think uh, England listening to this podcast has just fallen in love with you as well, Joe, because it's been a fantastic story of motorsport, uh, your career, but motorsport in general. And you have been pivotal to some of those incredible teams and incredible talents that the sport has seen over so many decades. It's been a real privilege to have you here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And if you're listening to this and you want to find out more about Joe's stories, remember that book, Joe Ramirez, Memoirs of a racing man go and get it off amazon and have a good in-depth read instead of those sunday papers read the book instead (laughs) (laughs) joe ramirez thanks for joining us thank you thank you both i think uh, on our lives and now especially with the pandemic we all have made this uh, zoom and these interviews and i have to say this is probably the best i've ever had thank you very much thank you wayne all the best that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the join today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.